You're listening to The Critical Thought, where we challenge our listeners to use critical thinking when examining the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. Hi, this is Lady C, and I want to welcome you to The Critical Thought. In the upcoming episode, I'm going to be speaking to Ava. She is a fifth-generation Jehovah's Witness, born in, in fact, they go all the way back to the days of Rutherford. And so she wanted to come out and tell her story about what it was like, her family being in this organization and how she came to the realization that this was not the truth. Not only that, but Ava appears to be the black sheep in her family because she's the only person that actually woke up to the real truth about the truth. So please join me in welcoming Ava to the program. Hello. Thank you so much, Ava, for being on the program. And, you know, we have spoken several times and, and I really got a chance to get to know you because, and, you know, like all the information that you've shared with me about you and your family. And I just want to just have you talk to the audience a little bit about how your family goes back the times during Rutherford and coming into this religion and, you know, what made them you know, become interested in this religion? Well, in Germany, there is uh, a lot of dissent because of the war going on. And my parents were children, small children during World War II. And even before that, my family, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents, you know, felt a lot of unsettledness because of what was going on. And when the good news came to them, of course, they were in a situation where they wanted to, it, it sounded so good to them. And as the years went by, uh, we were actually arrived in America through my grandmother. She came first. And I was five months old, and we continued to picked back up Jehovah's Witnesses teaching and started going back and get involved in the congregation there in upstate New York. Interesting. So now you say that you didn't come to the United States until you were five months old. Mm-hmm. And and I know that you weren't living during the time of the Holocaust. Right. Or you're, you're not old enough for that. Mm-hmm. So do can you share with uh, our audience any, any information that you have about what your family lived through with the Holocaust? Yes. When, what I was told when I asked questions, now you have to realize most of the time they did not want to talk about it. So it was kind of like you had to really ask a lot of questions to get them to talk about it. And, and you can understand why they didn't want to relive the terrible moments. But what I understood from my grandmother is that her sisters and her aunt, the aunts were in concentration camp and an uncle. And because of being a Jehovah's Witness, so they were part of the Purple Triangle. And um, they had a, a really difficult time. One of my uncles, um, I've gotten this story just lately from uh, one of my cousins that one of my uncles was murdered by the Nazis for standing up for Jehovah's Witnesses. And I never got that story from my parents. So there, I can now see where there was so much, why they hung on so tightly to the thought of paradise and seeing their loved ones after death. 
Yeah, that was so sad. And I'm so sorry to hear that about your family because, you know, you hear so much about that throughout history. We studied about this in high school mm -hmm. and different things like that. But you, I've never really spoken to anyone that was a Jehovah's Witness that actually had family that lived through that and actually lost someone during mm -hmm. that time. And I could totally understand, you know, why they didn't want to talk about it. Do you think that's the reason why they also don't want to maybe look into the religion to see whether or not it's really the truth? Because not so much that they want to see somebody in paradise, but because they would feel like they had died or lost family in vain. I would say yes, exactly. I mean, after you've been um, doing this for so many years, uh, okay, I'm in my middle 60s. And um, if you've been doing something for over 60 years, and all of a sudden somebody tells you it's a lie, it's devastating. So sometimes you'd rather just believe what's in front of you than trying to figure out what happened in actuality. Yeah, that is so true. And, and I understand that you have quite a big family as well. And it's like seven girls and one boy. So that's eight kids, right? Right. And of the eight children, you're the only one that kind of woke up and saw that something wasn't right. What was that? Can you explain? You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I am right in the middle. I'm the fourth of the eight children. And I first have to say, I love my sisters and brothers so much. I, I am not saying anything against them. I'm just stating my perspective on things. When I was eight, 10, something like that, and we would study at the book study about Lot story and the King Solomon story and all these violence, even in Noah's day, all the violence and the way it was portrayed that if you didn't follow Jehovah through the governing body, then that's what was going to happen to you. And it was terrifying to me. And the fact that you had to not associate with people from school or from work or anything like that. And it, there were such wonderful people, I felt like, in the world. Even I recognized back then that sometimes, you know, I had a great congregation that I grew up with. I, I cannot say anything bad about the people there. We had a great family life as far as that goes with activities with the other kids in the congregation. But sometimes the worldly kids were just like more in tune to how you felt. And you felt you, you could be yourself with them instead of trying to be perfect all the time. So it was, it was that that really, all that just kind of blended together. And I, I just kept having that feeling of um, discontentment there. Interesting. And you know what, you know what really, uh, when you were talking, when we were talking the other day and you were telling me about the experience with your friend and you went to her house, you want to kind of like, can you share that, that experience? I, th I, I thought that was so cute. <laughs> okay. Well, I've always been pretty stubborn and independent anyway. So um, I had a friend in school and I'm going to say maybe we were in third or fourth grade and she kept asking me to come over and stay and play with her. And she had asked me and asked me and asked me. And finally, one day I'm like, OK, just I'll just do it. And so I rode home with her on the bus and we played all afternoon and had such a great time. 
And then her mother comes home and says, okay, um, I, were you going to eat dinner with us? And um, when were your parents going to pick you up? And I'm like, they don't know I'm here. <laughs> and she, my, she was a little taken back, but um, she called my parents and my father did come and get me. And it was a very weird uh, ride home because he really didn't even say much about it. And then my mother didn't either. But that was the kind of thing that I would do. You know, I just kind of like ask for forgiveness rather than permission. I love it. I love it. But you know what I like, what I really like about what you said was you, you, you acknowledge the fact that you like the kids at the Kingdom Hall. Mm -hmm. But then you said, but I got a chance to be myself with the other kids. Mm -hmm. And so you got a chance to see both sides of the coin, which is mm -hmm. today we don't get that with these kids because now they're homeschooling. <laughs> Right. 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 And that's kind of terrible because you're taking the kids out of the environment. And I think that is on purpose because right. they don't want people oh, to yeah. have your experience. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's really sad because now in my later years, many, many, many of my schoolmates I'm friends with, good friends with, and they you know, by homeschooling, they don't have that diversity at all. And a diversity of friends is such a wonderful thing. I, I really enjoy everybody's differences. I like that because when you, like when, when I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness as well, I also had friends. But, you know, what divided us so much was the fact that I couldn't do birthdays and holidays. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what actually brings you together with people when you can share in those type of festivities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, exactly. It makes it different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, was your father a witness? No, my dad was not, but he was pretty supportive. Um, and he a, wanted to get baptized, but he was a smoker. Mm. So he was not allowed to get baptized. But um, for taking care of eight kids and being an orphan himself, that was, I always, had a high regard for him and yeah. the way that he parented and stuck with all of us girls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you know, coming from, from the, the German, your German background and all the mm -hmm. things that you, that your family had to endure, you know, I can see that he probably saw that um, his life that he came from mm -hmm. and now the life he's in now, you know, people generally do well with the life experiences and they, they make, decisions differently than someone who always had everything. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. But it sounds to me like your father may have been uh, very supportive. Like, in, in other words, he couldn't get baptized because of the smoking, mm -hmm. but he believed everything that they taught. He, right to his death. He believed it. Yes. And um, he, there was times when he would get kind of like jealous that my mom was always, you know, gone because the witness religion takes a lot of time. And so there were times where, you know, he wasn't so supportive, but, you know, I, I, as I looked through the years, generally he was, he mm -hmm. was. Well, you know, when we had also talked about your mother and I thought this was an interesting situation uh, during the time that she was living in Germany. This is before mm -hmm. you were born. Mm -hmm. And do you want to kind of talk about how she had to survive during the Holocaust days? You want to kind of talk about what you know about that? Yes, yes. Um, there, 
is a term called kinder transport. And my mother, when she was very young, now this will be maybe seven or eight, and I'm not positive about the ages. She was sent on a train to Austria, and it was under a program that the German children, lots of them Jews and then Jehovah's Witnesses, were sent out of the country so that they could be safe. And my mother was um, um, placed in a home of a uh, well-to-do Austria family where she stayed with them and she would do, you know, little housekeeping and mending and things like that. And it's hard to believe for an 80 year old now, but you know, that was, that's what they did. And um, in, they gave her room and board. They um, gave her, she had piano lessons. She got to um, enjoy the fine arts of Austria. Um, She learned how to um, embroider and um, the finer, of darning and and things like that. So she gained something too. I can't figure out how my grandmother and my mother were reunited because at that time they had no cell phones, no email. If they sent a letter coming, going from Germany to Austria, you know, I can't imagine that was a quick thing, but they were reunited when my mom was in her tweens. Awesome. And and that what I'd like to talk about with the kinder transport is um, I had gotten this book for my grandchildren, Nikki and Vera, and it talks about, I learned more about the kinder transport myself when it talked about an Englishman, his name was Nicholas Winston. So what he did is he went around and took all the names and photographs of the children so to get them out of the uh, country. And they were transported to different places. He had gone ahead of time and and kind of looked for the foster homes and then, you know, put put them together. So he is definitely an unsung hero. I mean, that was a huge effort. How he pulled it off, I don't know. I I can't even imagine without modern technology. But... What a wonderful humanitarian effort. And that's something that really touches my heart when you see people go out of their way to be so kind and protective of others. Absolutely. I totally agree. And that brings me to the part of the discussion that I want to talk about with you Mm -hmm. and how you told me that you were waking up like about 10 years old and you noticed that about the Watchtower and their humanitarian effort. Mm -hmm. What did you notice about that when you were younger? So what I realized when I was in probably around 10 is that there was no humanitarian efforts. I knew my classmates participated in all kinds of things that I was not allowed to, like the candy stripers and any kind of disaster that went on, you would see in the paper or on the news that people would help each other. And I did notice that they were a very inclusive group where they only helped those that were Jehovah's Witnesses and active in their congregations. And that conflicted with the story that I had with my mom, that she was sent to another 
uh, country so that she could be safe by someone that she did not know. And not only her, but millions of other people. And so it just conflicted in my heart that it was not balanced at all, this, this love, just taking care of the one faith instead of other people. And we had definitely benefited from the help of other people many times. And the main thing was, is that these people were not Jehovah's Witnesses. These people were just good humanitarian people that had love in their heart and wanted to help others to just to live and and not to suffer under the hands of um, what was going on in the war. You are absolutely 100% spot on because your story is so heartwarming. And for you to have been a critical thinker at the age of 10 years old is, is impressive because you were willing to go and let your mind go there and think about these things. The stories that you were told about your parents and, and your mother, especially your mother being able to escape as a youngster at the hands of somebody that wasn't even a Jehovah's Witness. So the question is, what were Jehovah's Witnesses doing to help their members besides getting a watchtower smuggled into their hands? But these are the kind of things that people don't want to really think about. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows that the only business of the watchtower is to get people more interested in mm -hmm. their agenda. And the mm -hmm. only thing they want to do is say, look, come to the meeting, go out in service, knock on doors, bring more people in. And later mm -hmm. on, you will have a life. That's it. Right. In paradise. Exactly. And see your loved ones. Right. So now what about as time went on and you, you began to, you know, go to school, what, what happened with your, your decisions and choices about furthering your education? You want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, when I was convinced that uh, 1975 uh, Armageddon was going to come and I really wanted to quit school and I could not because my brother-in-law convinced my parents not to let me. And it's a really good thing. Um, accolades to him. But I graduated in 76. So from there, I actually took business courses in high school, all the business courses I could. And from there, just off of the courses I took in school, I was able to right away get jobs as like a payroll clerk, inventory control clerk. And with each job, I would try to further improve my education. I took night classes in finances and uh, accounting. And I always made sure that with every job I had, I reached out for something that was even better and was better pay. That's good. Now, in the Jehovah's Witness religion, nobody can be improving anything. In fact, mm -hmm. you were supposed to have a squeegee and a bucket. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be doing nothing with no finances. So, you know, how did you get past all that? <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I did have a squeegee and a bucket, too, before I graduated. I would, um, I took jobs as house cleaning, and then I got asked to work for welfare cleaning welfare recipients' homes. So that was not an easy task, I'll tell you. That, I had to have a lot of fortitude to get through that. But I saved enough money to buy a car. So by the time I graduated, I had a car and I had a job. So I am so happy that I actually did it that way. 
Now, actually, I did get baptized. I think I was between 13 and 14, but I did get baptized because my sister was getting baptized and she was just younger than me and I couldn't have her get baptized before me. So that's why I got baptized. I didn't feel anything. And I guess that's why I don't even remember the date. That's okay. That was a long time ago, right? <laughs> very. Uh, very long time ago, so that's okay. That's happened. <laughs> Especially since we know it doesn't mean anything with the Jehovah's Witnesses anyway. Right, right. And you got baptized into the organization. But, <laughs> but anyway, you know, so I really like your story because you seem like you did a lot of foreplanning. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I got I to gotta go work this job over here. I got to get my car. When I graduate, I don't, I don't have to depend on somebody else. I, I did the hard grunt work first. Now I realize that I need to get a job. And every time mm-hmm. I get a job, I got to get a better one. I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you realize that at some point you're going to take care of yourself. Right, you know? right. And so how did the witnesses feel about this? Were you still a witness when you were doing all this going to school and stuff? What was going on at this point? Well, they, because I was so independent and stubborn in my thought, I just faded out more or less. I moved away from home right away into with a couple of other girls that were actually faders also. And so that's kind of um, how that went. I always felt guilty though, that because I, you know, my mom would ask me, was I going to the meeting? Was I going to the convention? And, you know, I had to skirt around it. And it really made me feel bad about always, you know, not being very truthful about all that. But I just couldn't do it. It was just sitting and listening to those talks and the Watchtower study. And I remember being young and saying, none of this makes sense to me. It never, maybe I'm not smart enough. And so I just kept thinking, it doesn't make sense. And as I got older, it still didn't make sense. So I didn't see the point in it. I didn't have any faith in it at all. Yeah. And you know what? When you say what you're saying, a lot of people are at the Kingdom Hall feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And you don't know why you're there, but, they're, but they just tell you that this is where you have to be. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like make you phobic to the point mm-hmm. where if you're not there, you're going to die at Armageddon. You're going to be destroyed right. forever and things like that. And so it's almost like it's a good luck charm. People are going because they feel like they have to be there. Mm-hmm. And I think the number one reason why people are there is because they're going to cut you off from everyone that you ever knew. And mm-hmm. that even your loved ones, you know, people mm-hmm. that your mom and dad, your siblings and stuff like that. And I understand that that's the situation that you're in right now. Mm-hmm. How are you handling the shunning? You want to talk about how long you've been shunned and how you are handling that situation right now? It has actually been since 2004 because of an incident that happened with my son that I was, he was young, a young teenager. And I felt that the elders really did not handle that with love at all. And it was almost like they were trying to teach him a lesson or the other kids in the congregation a lesson because he was a really wonderful young man. And it just broke my heart to see that. And, you know, when they decided that he would no longer be part of the congregation, it really just was like a knife was stabbed in my heart. And only because I was the one that called the brothers to ask for help. 
I wanted to know, you know, what I should do. I just thought it was like a, just a small parenting thing that I needed to develop. But once he was ousted from the congregation, I could not fathom that I would shun him. Not, never, never. I would never, because it was not even a, a, a big deal. So once my family then started shunning him, that just like twisted the knife. And then it was right before that I had uh, tried to go to the uh, elders and they would tell me that I asked too many questions, you know, because I would re- I read up on it and they just were like, well, you're asking too many questions, Eva. Just rely on Jehovah. He will work it all out. And I relied on Jehovah for 1975 to be the end of the world. I was not going to wait any longer for this minor incident to be uh, rectified because I knew that would never happen. I had no faith that was ever going to happen. And that's when I just never went back to the Kingdom Hall. And I um, sat down and in a turmoil of emotions, wrote the uh, a letter to all my to my family and uh, FedExed every one of them a copy of the letter. And um, we haven't talked since except for uh, the funerals of my, uh, the passing of my mom and dad. Oh my goodness. That was such a, a terrible experience you have to go through because we, we recently talked about this with some friends of ours about something that happened with their kids and how the Jehovah's Witnesses look at everything that we do or children do, and they don't let kids be kids mm-hmm. and how other children that are not witnesses can get in trouble and the parents understand, oh, these are just kids and they understand right. that, you know, that's just a fleeting moment or something. But in mm-hmm. the Jehovah's Witness religion, it's not treated like that. And right. people, your lives are just tar- turned upside down and to have to be shunned by people the way in which your family was shunned because of your son and the minor incident that happened with him. And by the way, people, this had nothing to do with fornication. No, <laughs> no. That's what the thing about it is, because, you know, we, people are thinking, oh, he probably got in trouble with somebody with no. fornication. It's like, no. no, it wasn't even that, right? It was very so, minor. Was very minor. And so it's like, you know, here you are in, in this tribunal with these three men, and a lot of people don't realize that when a judicial case comes before a body of elders, you are at the mercy of these three men that might not show mercy and they ain't got no business having that on their plate to even show you mercy. But it's like, they, they determine the outcome of the situation. Right. And so then you were saying that you wrote a letter mm-hmm. to your family. Right. Now, let me ask you a question. Now, when you wrote that letter, how long did it take them before they stopped talking to you totally? Immediately. See, right. So mm-hmm. you think that if you had, you know, like, I know you were on your journey at the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. But how would you have handled that differently if you know what you knew now about the situation? I would have handled that completely differently. I would have um, sat on that for a while until push came to shove, because we don't have to be accountable to these elders. We don't have to be accountable to other people. We don't have to tell them all of our business. I would have just sat on that until, because they were going to shun him anyways. 
And as far as that goes, I would have at least had some kind of relationship with my family, with my mom and and my sons, you know, really suffered of not having their Omi. Um, that's what a grandmother, a German grandmother's called. And um, if I had not left, I would have never had the wonderful relationship I have now with my grandchildren, with my sons, um, because that shunning just cuts you off. I like what you said about you ain't got to tell your business. And mm -hmm. even with your son, when your son found himself in a situation and the first thing you did was call the elders, it was like, wow, you know, hindsight, like I said, it's 2020. And yes. you probably would not have done that either. No, definitely not. No, for me, hindsight's 2030. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of hindsight going on. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Now, you said that like shortly after you left, you were telling me that your friend that had also left and, and did she share, what did she share with you? She shared information she, with you? Yes, yes. She, um, Tammy and I had been um, friends. We were coworkers who found out we were Jehovah's Witnesses and we became fast friends and we became um, roommates. And um, when I was going through this, she went through it in her own life before me leaving the religion. But when I was going through this with um, my son, she gave me a golden nugget, the crisis, the crisis of conscience and by Raymond France. And it, it, I still get chills. I was only in that little pamphlet because it was a small pamphlet. I was only in that pamphlet two pages in and I was like, I have got my confirmation. Yeah. So you had a, cause I know I got the book. So you had a pamphlet, he had a pamphlet out. Yeah. Yeah. She, she yeah, there was a, it was just, and actually it's on, um, you can get it on YouTube, a copy of it. I seen it through one of the, a post that somebody said, here's the, uh, the link that okay. you can get that little, that little one. Okay. I got you. Well, you know what? I think it's interesting too, because it's like a lot of people you're going to the kingdom hall and like you had stated earlier, you're going there. It makes no sense. What are we doing? As mm -hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they teach you to have tunnel vision. You can't mm -hmm. go to school. They don't want you doing outside extracurricular activities and your life becomes robotic. Mm -hmm. And you, you're, you're just existing. Mm -hmm. And then one day something happens like with you that mm -hmm. wakes you totally up. You got like this earthquake effect happening mm -hmm. in your life. And you're like saying, this is like a bombshell, right? Mm -hmm. Well, let me just see what's going on. Then somebody gives you something. So like when, when your friend Tammy, when she gave you that pamphlet, mm -hmm. you didn't have any reserve about reading it. But no. if you were that Jehovah's Witness that was like trying to do what was right, trying to go out and feel service, not listening to what people had to say, you wouldn't even have read that. Right, right. I would have refused, you know, said, no, thank you. <laughs> exactly. But then, but then you wake up and then you have a whole new world of opportunity open to mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. like, they, they didn't encourage us to go to theme parks. They didn't encourage us to go to um, mountain climbing and skiing and things. Mm -hmm. Well, that's to me, life is a gift. Mm -hmm. And the gift is the opportunity for you to indulge in the different things that's here on this earth. Mm -hmm. If God didn't want us to have these things, we would get up in the morning and just see black and white. Mm -hmm. I have a, a, a block about uh, waiting until something happens. <laughs> um, we have to really 
um, enjoy our life now. We have to enjoy uh, the nature, what the, what the creator has uh, gifted us with, the beauty in everything in the world, in, including the people. Um, there is so much to be thankful for. And um, for me, I, I consider myself a Christian, but I do not, um, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. And to me, it's okay. But I do know that um, I do have a strong conviction that we have a creator and that we are internally grateful for him, to him. But he then what he wanted for us, he wants us to be happy. Jesus in the and it plainly tells you in the Bible that Jesus wanted us to be happy. He didn't want us to um, be like um, robots. He wants us to be happy. And I'm going to follow that example. <laughs> I agree. One thing I really enjoy is um, I did not know the Bible as a in in the religion. I, I did I didn't know the Bible. Um, and one thing I'm really enjoying now is is going having a Bible study every Friday um, with a wonderful teacher. And um, she is such a beautiful person. And we, we don't study anything but the Bible. And I feel like I'm, you know, growing for appreciation more of the Bible than I ever had. Um, I feel like um, there's so much I didn't know. So, I mean, I... I was so ignorant for the Bible, and um, I feel like that has helped me so much. And um, and meeting other people that feel the same way has been a really beautiful um, experience. And as much as I so miss my sisters and my brother, I have to say, at this point, we have nothing in common. So you know, if I if we weren't sisters and brothers, I don't even know if we would be friends because we have nothing in common. But these people that I'm meeting now um, that have come out of it are so full of um, love and um, compassion and humanitarian things that they do that it is, it's a really such a, a wonderful upgrade, <laughs> a wonderful upgrade. I would like to add that one of the greatest things that I have done after a divorce, I took a coworker had suggested I go to a divorce recovery class. Okay. So it was held at a church and I went through this divorce recovery class and it was so beneficial now. And they had told me for every five years you've been married, you need a, a year to heal before you go on to another relationship, permanent relationship. That was such good advice. And this has only been in the last year because really once I left for good, the, the religion, I was kind of in limbo for many, many years until last year. Last year is the first time I actually went on to the internet and then found some YouTube and then some some platforms on Facebook. But through that, I was introduced to a sp spiritual abuse recovery class that I took. Oh my goodness, I cannot tell you how wonderful, that freed me completely. So I highly recommend 
a spiritual abuse recovery class to anyone who has still some angst. Um, it will totally clear your mind as to how, how you can get rid of all that um, noise in your mind. It, it was wonderful. David Henke wrote the book and he uh, facilitated the, the study. It was wonderful. Okay, I'll make sure I'll put the link to that in the description if you could email it to me. So Ava, do you have any further comments that you would like to share with uh, the audience? Yes, I would love to share that I am involved in a nonprofit organization. It's called Witnessing Freedom Foundation, and we'll have the link at the bottom. This is a foundation where we are uh, we started um, the beginning of this year. We are actively working towards um, setting up a, a movie about those exiting high control religions and how to, what their experiences are, what help they can get. It's one of my main things for myself is I have um, become so aware of the young people that leave and their parents just kick them out of the house. My heart is so passionate about helping young people, I mean, all people, but especially the young ones. They need to be loved, unconditional love. That is my main passion in love, in wor the world. Um, so, I would uh, recommend or ask you to um, look at the, up this foundation and perhaps in any way, give it a, you know, give it an accolade or if you can help in some way or volunteer in some way, we would be so happy for that. We are looking to, uh, this documentary is hopefully going to turn into something like a Netflix movie which costs a lot of money. So we're really trying to put our resources together and get in touch with people that can help us. For us, members of the foundation, we don't care about getting any money out of this. We are just doing it for the high control religions and to support them. I think that's a really good um, initiative to take this undertaking because there are so many people that don't realize that they need this. And I think it's not just for Jehovah's Witnesses either. Right. Because there's just people in general that are just being rejected by their family. Right. So we'll make sure. So what's the name of the organization again? It's Witnessing Freedom Foundation. And the website for Witnessing Freedom is www.witnessingfreedom.com. Dot org. So we'll make sure we put the link to this uh, website in thank the description you. below. We, we thank you. <laughs> you're so welcome because the more resources that we have on this, the better. Okay. So, yeah, I am so glad that you were able to come on the program and share your experience because so many people may be in the same situation that you're in where you just don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you were talking about you're going to the meetings and it makes no sense, you know, how do you rectify or justify me not being here because you mm -hmm. don't know anything else mm -hmm. until you got that pamphlet, Crisis of Conscience. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So uh, and I always just tell people we also have resources on our website, uh, mm -hmm. www 
exjwcriticalthinker.com. And we have a link to like resources, a resource link where people can go get that book as well. So anyway, so Ava, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, Lady C. Oh, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure. And so I want to thank everyone for being in the audience. And we will see you on the next episode. Thank you for being in our audience. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.